This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the way different kinds of plants are expected to respond to increases in temperatures and droughts that will impact our area under climate change. It's a good show, recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. I'm really excited to see results from all these studies and to start to get an idea about what patterns are universal and how does drought consistently affect plant communities regardless of where you are. But then also to see how do plant responses differ depending on if you're in a really dry site like the Colorado Plateau or in a more mesic site like the tall grass prairie of Kansas. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Alex Fenigworth. She is a former biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey here in Moab. She studies how different types of drought are expected to impact the plant communities we see on the Colorado Plateau. Here we explore how experiments provide insight into plant responses to future drought due to climate change, and what that might mean for the ecosystems and how we manage them into the future. We begin our interview with Alex explaining the different types of drought that happen in Southeast Utah. First of all, we know that climate change has already begun to happen here on the Colorado Plateau. 2000 to 2010 was the warmest year on record. We've already seen temperatures increase by a couple degrees Fahrenheit in the past 20 or so years here. So climate change is already happening and climate models predict that we'll continue on this trajectory. Things will keep getting warmer. For this area, climate models are a little less certain about precipitation. They might show a slight reduction in precipitation, but even if we don't see any changes in precipitation, we know things will still get drier because things are getting hotter. And as things get hotter here, especially in an already dry environment, we're going to see more evaporation, more transpiration, and so less moisture, less water on the landscape. And as things get hotter, and drier. Our climate models also show precipitation and climate becoming more variable. That's going to lead to more drought. We can think about two main types of drought that kind of differ in duration and severity. The first type of those droughts is a press drought. And if you pictured some sort of force pressing down constantly, it's like a chronic long-term drought that typically tends to be a little more subtle or moderate. The key thing there is that it's long-term, it's ongoing. Plants and the, the environment are experiencing it for a long time. And the other type of drought that we can think about is a pulse drought. And again, it's what it sounds like. It's a quicker pulse to the system. Pulse droughts tend to be more severe, but shorter lived. So maybe on the range of six months to a year, it's more of just a quick but intense pulse to the system. Are the droughts that this region has seen in the past different from the droughts that we expect under climate change? I think they are and are going to be different in a couple different ways. The Colorado Plateau has been in like this climate period for about the past 10,000 years. Before that, it was a little wetter. 
in the past 10,000 years have kind of been characterized as being drier than the time prior to that, but also having kind of like an average state of climate, but having a lot of variability around that with lots of drier than average periods and lots of wetter than average periods. But overall, it's kind of been hovering around an average for that time. The thing that's happening now is we think temperatures are ramping up, so we're sort of deviating away from that average and things are getting warmer. And so even though there have been lots of periods of drought, droughts now are going to be hotter, be longer, more intense, and potentially putting these different novel pressures on the plant communities here. And the other novel aspect of droughts occurring today and in the future is that there's a lot more people and a lot more pressure from people here than there ever have been. And more people doing more things is going to be adding additional pressures onto the plant communities that might already be stressed from drought. So any type of land use might be contributing additional stress to plants that are already stressed from drought. How does the timing of, let's just say, the pulse drought, the more intense drought, impact how much effect that drought might have? Seasonality of drought is important. The research that I've been doing has focused on cool season versus warm season moisture and drought. And that's because here on the Colorado Plateau, moisture and precipitation, whether it's rain or snow during those two periods, is really important for our plant communities. The Colorado Plateau actually sits at the interface of two different climate zones. So to the northwest, there is one climate zone that is dominated by winter storm events moving in from the Gulf of Alaska. And then to the southeast, more into New Mexico, that climate zone is really dominated by the monsoons or the summer precipitation, or we see these intense, shorter-lived local convective storms moving in from the Gulf of Mexico. And the Colorado Plateau sits basically right in the middle of those two zones. Both winter and summer moisture are really important, but not necessarily always reliable like it is if you're more in the center of one of those zones. It's interesting, and it makes sense that we have both cool season and warm season plants here co-occurring in this area, and I think that's because we have sort of the co-dominance of both cool season and warm season precipitation. So when you say cool season, warm season plants, what does that mean? That really is going back to when those plants are most efficient at photosynthesizing and growing, and that is linked to the type of photosynthesis that they use. Warm season plants just have a type of photosynthesis that enables them to keep photosynthesizing even in really high temperatures. When it's 110, some of our warm season, or they're called C4 grasses, can still be photosynthesizing. And an example of that is Gaeta grass, or our drop seed species Whereas our cool season grasses utilize a different type of photosynthesis where they can't function as, as well in really high temperatures. And so they take advantage more of early, cooler moisture. So you might expect that drought during the cool season or during winter would impact cool season grasses and shrubs more and summer drought to impact warm season grasses and shrubs more. And there's also kind of been this historical hypothesis or idea that winter precipitation is just more important in general on the Colorado Plateau. And that is because when precipitation falls in the winter, it's 
not 110 degrees out. So that moisture has a chance to soak into the soil and really percolate in and just sit there and not evaporate immediately. And if it falls in the form of snow, then it sits there even longer on the surface and has time to soak in. And so you can get a lot more bang for your buck with winter precipitation. A lot of ecologists have kind of thought that that's the most important type of precipitation, but some of our studies, like the one I've been working on here, have shown that droughting either season can have really big impacts on both cool season and warm season grasses and plant species. Go into that more. Tell me about your study and what it's seen. For the past couple years, I've been working on a research project that is called EDGE, or the Extreme Drought and Grasslands Experiment. It's one of many experiments like this in the country and in the world, but the general idea is to experimentally simulate drought so we can see what happens to the plant community, so we can try to make informed predictions about how plant communities might shift in the future with increasing extreme drought. Our EDGE project is a little unique in that we have these hypotheses about both winter precipitation and summer precipitation being important, so we're actually looking at drought in the winter and drought in the summer. And so we have basically a bunch of plots in a native grass and shrubland community near the Needles District, and we have these big hoop house structures that we've put over the plots that we can cover with big plastic troughs that divert about two-thirds of the naturally falling precipitation away from the plots. And we have plots that are covered with these structures during the winter, plots that are covered with these structures during the summer, and the plots that always receive whatever natural precipitation is falling. And then we've monitored the plant communities in terms of production and reproduction through time. What made you want to take two-thirds of the water off of the plots? So this experiment is designed to simulate pulse droughts, and that's just characteristic of that type of drought as being pretty extreme, but for shorter periods of time. So these plots have these drought treatments for six months of the year. So very intense, removing a lot of the precipitation and reflecting potentially real pulse droughts that would be occurring in the future, but for a short period of time. It's cool to think about because, you know, we've had warm years, we've had dry months recently. And so taking two thirds of the precipitation off would be a really intense drought. It is, and it's it's very intense, and you don't have to be a scientist to walk around that site and see the effects that these treatments are having. But again, there are not unrealistic amounts of precipitation that we're removing. Take, for example, this past year in Moab, we were way behind average for you know most of the year. So what have you been seeing? Can you go into the responses of these different plant communities that we have here around Moab? The site where we have this experiment is dominated by both warm season and cool season grasses and then a couple of different shrub species. The most obvious pattern we've been seeing is just that drought is bad for the vast majority of plant species in this community. We see that plant cover, plant biomass, and plant reproduction is all, all of those things suffer during drought and immediately following drought, whether it's in the winter or the summer. And then something interesting we've been starting to see is that these drought treatments seem to be having longer-term effects, where even when you remove the drought and let them have normal precipitation in the following season, and kind of the off-season, that the plant communities aren't recovering or bouncing back to normal levels. 
And so that suggests that pulse droughts, so short-term droughts, could have lasting effects. And the plant communities might take a couple years or longer to fully recover. And then if you keep droughting them, they might never have that chance to fully recover. When you say recover, you are meaning that the plant species that were there before come back. Yes, or have similar amounts of cover or biomass or reproduction to our control plots, which are plots that never receive any kind of drought treatment. We're using those as kind of reference plots. Are you seeing any evidence of species changing? We're in our fourth year now, but it's a little hard to say if the community is changing, but we have seen differential responses of species, which could indicate more permanent lasting changes. So for example, grasses and forbs pretty uniformly don't like drought. But one really interesting thing we've been seeing is the dominant shrub there, ephedra or Mormon tea, has almost showed no response to drought. It really doesn't care. It seems to not really care nearly as much as the grasses and the herbaceous species that are there. What this could suggest is that if this type of drought were to continue or become worse, that we might see communities shifting away from grass-dominated and towards more shrub-dominated communities. Do we know why grasses might be doing worse than shrubs under drought conditions? Our experiment doesn't really directly test that, but there's a lot of stuff in the literature that can support some hypotheses. And one thing we think could be going on is that the grasses and the forbs root at a much shallower depth than ephedra. And so drought is basically going to start pulling the moisture from the upper levels of the soil first. It's going to start drying from the top down. The grasses and forbs might just run out of water sooner than ephedra, whereas ephedra can tap into these deeper reserves of water and keep utilizing them even after those shallower roots have all dried up. And then it might also just be that ephedra is just more conservative or efficient in some way at using water. It's kind of a weird plant. It doesn't really have photosynthetic leaves. It photosynthesizes through its stems. So potentially there's something going on there where it can have this advantage over more leafy plants. You know, you guys have those specific plots um, down near the needles and canyonlands with these specific species that you're looking at. But some of the species have large ranges across the Colorado Plateau and, you know, into other areas. These species probably have genetic diversity and a little bit of or a lot of bit of adaptation to the different environments and so would you expect these species to all respond to drought similar ways or are there going to be variations in how these species respond to drought in different areas i would expect plants with large ranges that span large environmental gradients to show some sort of local adaptation and potentially respond differently in the sense of performing better in whatever type of environment reflects their native or local environment. Obviously here in the southwest a very strong environmental gradient is that monsoon gradient which is a little different from drought but it still it involves moisture and it kind of gets at the seasonality of moisture. And one species we've been looking at specifically is Gaeta grass. Has a pretty large range spanning this whole monsoon gradient and some collaborators have done some genetic analyses and found that there is like a genetic gradient that follows the monsoon gradient which suggests that there is local adaptation. And we've asked this experimentally, 
but we're still teasing that apart and trying to figure out exactly what's going on with that. I think a good hypothesis is that a lot of plants are probably adapted to local moisture regimes and that they very well might respond in different ways to drought. Some might be more or less sensitive to drought. And there's two hypotheses about sort of species in drier and wetter environments and how they might respond to drought. One idea is that species in wetter environments, these wetter environments are not as limited by water. And so it might be that if you drought that system, if you take some of the moisture off, there's the plants just still aren't gonna care. They're gonna be more concerned about other resources plants in more dry environments like Colorado Plateau alternatively might be already more adapted to droughtier, drier conditions, so they might be able to handle it better. So there's kind of these two opposing hypotheses. How do you experimentally test questions about adaptations over gradients? Basically what you have to do is go out and find populations of that species that's spanning some sort of environmental gradient that you're interested in, like moisture. And you can kind of look at their different traits and characteristics and responses where they are. But really, to be able to really compare the different populations and really get at local adaptation, you have to put all of those populations in a common environment. And those are called common garden experiments. And that's kind of what we did with Gaeta grass. And so you take all of these populations from different environments, put them in a common environment, and then you can apply different types of drought or apply different amounts of moisture or whatever you want and see how they respond and kind of mimic different types of environments. And by looking for differences in how populations from different areas respond, you can kind of get at that local adaptation. And then it's always better if you can also get the genetic DNA data to back that up and show that there actually are genetic differences. Are there impacts that you're seeing to the larger ecosystem when you start stressing out portions or all of the plant community in these experiments? We are not necessarily exploring all of that with this experiment, but we do know that our results are sort of suggesting right now that we might start to see less grass species and more shrubs on the landscape. It's kind of a common thing that we've been finding in this area. Grass is kind of decreasing and shrubs increasing. As the community shifts in that way, you might think that the ecological function of that system is going to change. As we lose grasses, this is probably going to affect our soils. Grasses are really important to conserving soil on the Colorado Plateau because it's a very dry, sandy environment. Obviously, we know biocrusts help hold our soils in place, but grasses and any plant helps a lot with that too. And grasses and forbs with their really shallow roots can sort of hold that top layer of soil in place. And then also, if you think about grasses versus shrubs on the landscape, grasses and herbaceous species create more of a uniform blanket, and that is going to create a buffer against either the forces of wind or water on eroding away soils. Whereas if you look at a site that's dominated by shrubs, it's going to be more patchy. You'll have bigger individual plants, but larger spaces between them, which can actually lead to increased erosion because you have less of that cover, and that's more of an opportunity for wind or water to get in there and move the soil. So that's one big change we could be seeing if we're losing grasses. And then the other really important ecological and 
economic function of grasses is as forage and habitat for both native wildlife and domestic livestock. One example I love to give because it's cute is Indian rice grass and the kangaroo rat. They depend on each other and we see kangaroo rat tracks everywhere at our site and we have a bunch of Indian rice grass. Kangaroo rats depend pretty exclusively on Indian rice grass and I think one shrub species for their food source and they cache away the Indian rice grass seeds for their winter food and so obviously less Indian rice grass is going to mean less kangaroo rats and then less kangaroo rats could in turn mean even less Indian rice grass because by caching their seeds they're allowing new germination sites for future Indian rice grass plants and then of course ranching is a really important economic activity on the Colorado Plateau and a lot of the grasses here on our rangelands, gaeta grass, Indian rice grass, needle and thread, our drop seeds are important winter forage species for cattle. Less grasses is bad news for ranchers. Another important ecosystem service of grasses is their aesthetic value. I'm from the East Coast where there's a lot of lush green vegetation. And so I think like a field of green flowering grass here is just absolutely beautiful and I think these view sheds are really important for the tourism industry here and obviously drought, aridity make grasses less green and less happy and flower less. Are there plans for how much longer this drought experiment is going to go on? This spring is going to be our last major sampling effort And typically every spring and fall, we move the shelters from either the winter treatments to the summer treatments or vice versa. We have four years of winter and summer drought. We're going to stop those treatments and then we're going to keep monitoring the site and monitor for recovery and try to get an idea about how long it takes for these communities to recover following drought. If it takes longer to recover from winter drought versus summer drought, if certain species take longer to recover, and if we eventually see, maybe after a couple of years, the community completely rebound to look like communities that never experienced drought, or if they never really get back to that state and they might kind of move towards a different state. So that's the plan, is to keep monitoring for recovery, and potentially we might even, a few years down the road, try to start droughting them again and see what happens if you have drought, if you recover, and then if you have drought again. We're really just trying to emulate realistic scenarios that could happen. These same or similar experiments are going on in other ecosystems? Yep. I know there's at least 12 other sites that have basically the same experimental design set up but in a different type of grassland. So there's six in the central U.S., in the Midwest, and I think most of those sites are wetter than our site. And there is also six sites in China that kind of span a gradient from more desert grasslands to more mesic or wet grasslands. And the really cool thing about that is we have replication within each of these experiments, but then we have this replication among systems throughout the world. I'm really excited to see results from all these studies and to start to get an idea about what patterns are universal and how does drought consistently affect plant communities regardless of where you are. But then also to see how do plant responses differ depending on if you're in a really dry site like the Colorado Plateau or in a more mesic site like the tall grass prairie of Kansas.
What first got you interested in studying plants and their responses to the environment? I've always been fascinated by plants and fungi. Like I can remember specific plants and specific fungi that I just was mesmerized by and would just stare at and love just exploring as a kid. And I still am that way. But in college, I started getting really interested in and more concerned about different environmental issues. And I was trying to figure out what's the right role for me to play in addressing these issues. And eventually I kind of realized that I could join those two forces, that I could combine my amazement and love for the natural world with contributing towards solving some of the many environmental issues that we face today. And that that was through science. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? It's really fulfilling because I feel like I am making a difference and trying to make this world a better place. And that is just by trying to conduct the highest quality science and produce the highest quality data to share with people that can then take that information and make the most informed decisions about policy, land management, any number of different issues. Knowledge is power and science creates knowledge. Well, Alex, thank you so much for telling us about your work. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you. To listen to this interview with Alex Vanigworth again or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. The music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU.